U.S. Justice Department seizes $3.6 billion in stolen Bitcoin. And school district CISO quits over handling of data breach. These stories and more on this week's ISFG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Have you ever wondered what a crypto-loving rapper sounds like? Have a listen to a song called Menace to Society. Menace to society, higher than the sky can see. You can't get as high as me, synesthesia I can see. This clip comes from a would-be rap star known as Razzle Khan. But instead of busting moves, Razzle Khan is now having to bust a rap sheet. Razzle Khan is the alter ego of a 31-year-old New Yorker named Heather Morgan. She and her husband, Ilya Lichtenstein, age 34, were charged this week with laundering billions of dollars worth of stolen bitcoins. Joining me to discuss all things rap and crypto is Matthew Schwartz, executive editor of Data Breach Today and Europe. So Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, the pair were allegedly sitting on bitcoins worth $3.6 billion. Yes, it's an astounding figure, and you are right. This week, federal prosecutors unsealed an indictment charging the couple with laundering nearly 120,000 bitcoins that were stolen in 2016 from a virtual currency exchange called Bitfinex. So the couple have not been charged with the theft, but according to court documents, The FBI executed a search warrant on January 31st, and they recovered a file from a cloud storage service being used by Liechtenstein. After decrypting that file, the FBI said it found thousands of Bitcoin addresses, many of which it is now tied to the Bitfinex hack. Here's Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. As alleged, the defendants used sophisticated efforts to launder the stolen cryptocurrency. But thanks to good old-fashioned police work, we traced the stolen funds from the exchange, which led us to a wallet containing over 2,000 Bitcoin addresses. From there, investigators followed the money to accounts at the notorious dark market Alphabet, an online forum dismantled by law enforcement in 2017. From Alphabet, the prosecutors and investigators from the Justice Department, IRS criminal investigation, Homeland Security Investigations, and the FBI followed the stolen money on its complex journey through a labyrinth of virtual currency exchanges and wallets based here and abroad. Our work also benefited from the private sector's due diligence. As the defendants tried to launder funds through various virtual currency exchanges, many asked questions about where the money came from or even froze funds based on their suspicions. Several exchanges enforced anti-money laundering policies and know-your-customer requirements that proved key to this investigation, showing how cryptocurrency can become safer and more reliable when we work together to root out its abuse. What's notable here is that six years after the hack attack, back when the stolen Bitcoins were only worth $71 million, the FBI now says it's cracked this case. And of course, since then, the value of Bitcoin has skyrocketed. So the total value of the missing Bitcoins is now more than $4.5 billion. The FBI says it's now recovered $3.6 billion of those funds. That makes this not just the biggest cryptocurrency seizure in U.S. history, but the biggest financial seizure ever. So what happened to the nearly $900 million that the FBI didn't seize? 
So based on the charges, the couple allegedly laundered 21% of the stolen funds. Now, again, they haven't been charged with stealing the funds, but they could be later. Now, what's really fascinating to me about this case is the FBI says the suspects used numerous tactics to try and obscure the origin of the Bitcoins. These included such things as peel chains, in which a large amount of Bitcoins is sitting at one address, and it gets sent through a series of transactions in which a slightly smaller amount of Bitcoins gets transferred to a new address each time or peeled off. This is meant to help obscure where the funds have come from by the time they get to a point where attackers think it's safe to use them. In theory, anyway, that's how it works. Blockchain analysis firm Elliptic has been closely tracking where these funds have been going. Last May, its chief scientist, Tom Robinson, published research showing that many of the Bitcoins amongst this 21% that was laundered, many of them had gone to a darknet market called Alphabay, as the deputy attorney general mentioned. So after Alphabay was shuttered in 2017, the funds didn't move so much. What's fascinating about Alphabay is investigators took that down and seized records of the activity. So they gained a lot of intelligence about the Bitcoins that were being used at the site and wallet addresses. So all of this got added to the intelligence being used to track multiple different cases, including this one. So fast forward now to 2020, and Elliptics Robinson said that after there not being any activity for a while, there was a flurry of activity. And all of a sudden, a lot of the Bitcoins that had been stolen now were getting moved into Hydra, which continues to be the world's biggest darknet market. It's Russian language only, provides a lot of services. And as Robinson's reported, one of the services provided by Alphabet before and now Hydra are cash out services. This lets you take Bitcoins and convert them into things like gift vouchers, prepaid debit cards, hard cash, in this case, rubles. And this allows criminals to, again, try to launder their funds. If they use exchanges, a lot of exchanges comply with know your customer and anti-money laundering regulations. This can end up flagging suspicious transactions, as the deputy attorney general said had happened. So a lot of times criminals will try to use these darknet market cash out services to launder the funds in a way that won't come back to bite them. But as this case highlights, despite the attempt to use these various tactics, laundering large amounts of cryptocurrency remains really difficult. The U.S. government is continuing to crack down on exchanges that don't do KYC, know your customer, and anti-money laundering requirements, punishing ones with sanctions that don't comply with this sort of thing. And so, based on the suspect's inability to safely launder just 21% of the stolen funds they allegedly controlled, Arguably, it's becoming more and more difficult for criminals to cash out their cryptocurrency in a way that could see this sort of large-scale theft become increasingly hard to perpetrate in the future. So we need to stay tuned to see if this cryptocurrency couple can beat the rap. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The chief information security officer for a Dallas-based school district has resigned over the district's handling of a crippling data breach that occurred last year. Jeremy Kirk, our managing editor of Security and Technology, investigates. A school district in Dallas, Texas, appears to have stretched the definition of transparency related to a data breach. 
So much so that the chief information security officer for the district reportedly quit his job over the district's handling of it. Rajin Coonberry was a CISO for the Dallas Independent School District, which is the second largest public school district in Texas. According to local TV broadcaster WFAA, Coonberry submitted his resignation by email on October 28, 2021. Coonberry wrote in the email that he is, quote, afraid the details of the breach will become public at some point and Dallas ISD will lose credibility, end quote. WFAA also reveals why. The district failed to tell the public that the source for the breach was two of its own students. The news station uncovered that fact through a Freedom of Information Act request. In public, the district had blamed an unauthorized third party. But if students were involved, they would be a first party, not a third party. The breach came to light in August 2021 after the two students sent an anonymous email to the district. All told, 800,000 sensitive personnel and student records were accessed. The district waited nearly a month before disclosing the breach and then tweeted that it believed in being transparent around it. Federal prosecutors had opted not to press charges against the students. Doug Levin is national director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange. The Washington, D.C.-based organization helps schools improve their cybersecurity practices and distributes actionable threat intelligence. He says schools' electronic systems have always been targets of their own students. Here's Levin. Um, The threats that schools are facing are not just uh, external, right? They're also facing threat from insiders that every school that serves middle and high school students has uh, one or more tech-savvy students who may be bored, who who are turning their attentions to their school district's uh, software and tools. Um, And some of them uh, are going to do things that they will probably regret later, but we could be quite embarrassing uh, to school districts. I mean- embarrassing indeed. But the embarrassment for the district is now coming from the blowback from not fully telling the truth. Levin says that some school districts have been reluctant to share details about cybersecurity incidents for fear of being targeted again or revealing weaknesses in their systems. His organization encourages sharing since it helps other schools defend themselves, and it's possible to share generalized information in a way that doesn't increase risk. But Levin says, The notion of like, you know, misleading people about who who is behind the incident, not, not ideal. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. And finally, more on Zero Trust this week as we prepare for our upcoming virtual Zero Trust Summit on February 22nd and 23rd, to which you can register on our sites. Here's a taster on Zero Trust myth-busting, taken from a conversation between our Senior Vice President of Editorial, Tom Field, and retired Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, Director of the CERT Division at Carnegie Mellon University's Software Engineering Institute. As a longtime proponent, of the zero trust architecture. In fact, you were the very first speaker to come up on our stages at our uh, ISMG summits and talk about zero trust. What's important for you to clarify regarding this long-term roadmap? The thing that really jumps off the page to me is, is you do have to have that strategic approach, but you also have to go in with your eyes wide open. One of the myths that continues to persist out there that I think is one of the major impediments is the thought that, hey, if I go and I buy a certain suite of tools, that's the only cost in zero trust. Our research here indicates that actually the largest cost 
is not necessarily the buying of the technology that supports the journey, but rather understanding your own data. Having graduated from the staff college under John Warden, I learned that Frederick the Great said, he who defends everything defends nothing. You really have to get rid of the thought process, all data is equal. It's not. You want to defend your assets proportional to the value and the risk. And when we take a look at that zero trust journey, uh, we find that folks getting a handle on their data, its value, where it's located, who has access and who should have access, and under what conditions and entitlements we want them to have access is critically important. And that's really where we're finding a lot of folks are having that sober wake-up call without a nice strong pot of coffee. It's more like a slap across the face when they find out, oh my gosh, I don't really understand my own data and my own risk environment. But once they get past that, then they find that it is relatively smooth ride after you figure out your data to apply the technology to meet your needs. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Oh,